Okay, we'll go ahead and dismiss children for Children's Church. So any who are four years old up through second grade can go to room 107 at this time. Well, on the screens up here, you can see our title slide for the book of Acts. And this has been the title slide we show at the beginning of every sermon so far that we've looked at here in the book of Acts. And this title slide really describes the works of God, the acts of God. Um, And it is the triune God. It is God the Father uh, being very active in the architectural work of what's going on. You have God the Son being very active in um, redeeming, filling, guiding, showing, uh, leading the church. And you have God the Holy Spirit as well, who was powerfully at work in so many ways throughout this book. So it really is the acts of God. I know sometimes uh, people have referred to this book as the acts of the apostles or just the book of Acts, but it is God powerfully living at work, demonstrating his power on the earth, building his church through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. God has also chosen to do much of this work through humans, through people. And so this title slide really does hopefully capture what is going on as we've been walking through the book of Acts, that this is the acts of God in, first of all, the people, redeeming them, changing their hearts, changing their perspectives, changing their futures, changing their actions, their lives entirely working in them first, but then also sending them out powerfully to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And so it is God's doing in this book, in people, first of all, and then through them with the goal that we looked at way back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. They would be witnesses of Jesus Christ, the living Jesus Christ, the one who went to the cross, was buried, was raised again on the third day, and continues to live and rule in this earth. He is alive. He is not dead. He did not remain in the grave. And so there's this very active living tone that is taking place in the book of Acts. So that is all of God's doing. We also, though, can come to the book of Acts thinking about and looking at our desire that God would do something through us and with our lives. As Christians, it's it's good and right for us to desire that our lives count for God. Now, as we think about that, it can be easy to get caught up thinking that our lives only count for God if we do something sensational or large or big or grandiose for the Lord. And and I would say we face this challenge in maybe in a unique way, especially walking through the book of Acts, where it can become easy to compare ourselves with the pace and the magnitude of all that's going on. It it seems like the book of Acts is a sensational book. On every page, there are these miracles. There are people doing and receiving and encountering and participating in these magnificent things. It would be easy for us to come to this book and, and think, in comparison, my life is pretty small. I'm doing some pretty insignificant things. 
Where are all these things showing up in, in my life? And do I pursue these things? And so there is a unique challenge as we've been walking through this book that we resist this temptation to compare ourselves with the pace and the magnitude of everything that's going on. If we do that, we would long for seeking something big and sensational and important and miraculous and therefore counting our lives for God, but that would be by our own definition. So I just wonder as we get into our text here this morning, have you ever been there? Have you ever felt like your life might not be reaching its fullest potential if you just live out the ordinary means of grace that God has displayed in your life? If you're just simply taking day by day, asking the Lord, guide me, lead me today. If this is the case, then I think you, I think all of us will be very encouraged by today's text. We're going to meet four people. One of them is the Apostle Peter, who is doing some sensational miracles in this text today. The other three people are pretty ordinary, I would say. They're just average, ordinary people doing some average, ordinary things. But the Lord was working his work through them as well. He was working his work in all of these people. And the three that were not the Apostle Peter were no less miraculous because the name of Jesus is spread throughout these communities and the church is expanding and God is working his work in both big things and small things and it is all varied. And so we would ask this question, how are we to look at these things today? And certainly, how are we to think about God using us in our life? that the name of Jesus would be spread and the church would be built up. So I've titled this morning's message, Acts of God in Spreading the Name of Jesus. We're going to look at a number of these. And it really does go along with the entire theme of the book. What powerful acts of God will we see today in this text as he spreads the name of Jesus beyond Jerusalem, beyond the nation of Israel, and into the and most parts of the world. Be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 32 through 43. You know, just a transition into our text this morning. Last Sunday, we followed Saul, and we followed Saul on a journey where he went from Damascus to Jerusalem. In both places, there were people that were looking to take his life, and so disciples sent him further on to Tarsus, which was Saul's hometown. And so Saul is really cut away from the text at this point, and we don't hear from him again or about him again for three more chapters. Bible scholars think that he may have spent at a minimum of eight and maybe as many as ten years in Tarsus. So we don't always catch the chronology as we're going through and feeling it in real time, but the text is going to cut away from Saul. He goes back to his hometown. He's going to be there for many, many years and we are reintroduced to Peter in our text this morning. It's almost like in the meantime, what's going on, we shift back to Peter, and Peter will be the focus for the next three chapters, and then Peter moves off the scene, and everything turns to Saul, as we would know him at the, as the Apostle Paul at that point. But let's turn now to Acts chapter 9, with these words of introduction that get us into what's taking place what we'll see here this morning as the acts of God spreading the name of Jesus. 
Look with me at verse 32 of Acts chapter 9. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. Now, God is powerfully here going to be mobilizing Peter, and I want to talk about Peter for a moment. This may not look very sensational, may not look very powerful of what's going on, but in fact, God is powerfully mobilizing his servant to encourage and enrich the churches. We see Peter here acting both pastorally, meaning that he has care over these multiple communities of Christians that he's moving about, and he's also acting as a role of overseer. It's an interesting phrase here in verse 32. It says that Peter went here and there among them all. He's traveling in and out of these communities of Christians, and it means that he is he is in, enriching and encouraging and teaching the Christians in many towns. He's, he's edifying them. Now, I have a map here I'd like to show us just to kind of orient us with what's going on and maybe where some of these things uh, would live in proximity to one another. Peter was in Jerusalem. He's going to travel to Lydda first. Lydda's about 22 miles from Jerusalem. Later on in our text this morning, he'll travel from Lydda to Joppa. That's about another 12 miles. And then as we end our text this morning, he's going to move from Joppa to Caesarea, so about 35 miles. So really what's taking place is Peter is beginning to minister out and then along the coastline there of the Mediterranean Sea. What we want to note in this verse is the powerful way that God was working in Peter to move the gospel outward from Jerusalem. And, and this is Peter. Let's remember Peter. He was a fisherman by trade. He was not a world traveler. He may not even necessarily have liked traveling, especially in the ancient world when this was all done by foot and you stayed in other people's homes. This would not have been an easy thing. But Jesus called him to be a disciple. And we remember that he was a fisherman by trade Jesus called him in Matthew chapter 4 as he was in a boat casting nets into the sea. Jesus said, follow me, and he followed him. Later on, after spending three years with Jesus in ministry, witnessing the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, Peter went back to his hometown of Galilee that would be north on this map, just off of, uh, off of it uh, to the north just a little bit. Peter goes back to his hometown and returns to fishing. John chapter 21 tells us that Jesus again encounters Peter as he's in Galilee fishing. Fishing was in his DNA. We could maybe describe Peter this way. Naturally, he was a fisherman, and he probably never wanted to leave that profession. He may never even wanted to initially leave his hometown to just stay there doing what he loved and enjoy doing. Ah, but as Christians, we're not just something naturally. God does a supernatural work. And so even though Peter would have been naturally a fisherman, he was supernaturally mobilized for the gospel to encourage the saints with his visits. And I would say that today God works in us in similar ways. We might naturally be one way. But then supernaturally, God puts in us a strong love for the church, 
a strong love for the gospel, and it mobilizes us in ways that we would have never imagined. It doesn't just mean that we have to travel far distances. What this means is that God initiates in us a care and a concern for the church and a care and a concern for people, and he puts that within us that gets us moving to love his church and to spread the good news of salvation, even if that movement might be for us something a little simpler than miles and miles of travel on foot, but just picking up the phone to call someone or walking next door or approaching someone here at church on Sunday. God is powerfully mobilizing his servants. We can't just skip past that. This is Peter having put in his heart to spread the gospel to be a a spokesperson, spokesperson for Christ, and he's on the move. Secondly, as we look on in these verses here, in verses 33 through 34, we also see, though, that God is powerfully working. He's powerfully acting, demonstrating the authority of Jesus over the body, and especially over fallen bodies, living in a fallen, sin-cursed world where our bodies don't do everything we want them to do. And in fact, there is decay and decline, but we're going to see how God powerfully works here in verses 33 through 34. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. So Peter arrives in Lydda, and in the course of his visit, he encounters this man named Aeneas. Something had happened to this man. Something had happened eight years previously. We don't know. Was it an accident? Uh, Did he catch polio? We don't know what happens here. Specifically, we're not told. But whatever it was, it was obvious that Aeneas is suffering some significant effects of living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. You know, in God's perfect creation back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, this would have never happened. God made the world perfect, made our bodies perfect, but then sin entered and now we live in a fallen world. And the reality is, is that we bump up against suffering and sickness and things of the like. And we ask this question as humans living in this world, is there any hope for this? Is there any hope for this or do we just make good with it? Is there any authority? Is there any power that is greater than living under the umbrella of a fallen world, living under the umbrella of sin's curses? Is there any scenario, whether it would be immediate in the now or ultimate in heaven one day, that can free humans from this curse? Is there anything that can reverse this curse? We learn from our text in Scripture here today a resounding, yes, there is. Yes, there is something greater. Yes, there is something that has authority and power over all of these things. It is Jesus. The power comes by the name of Jesus. Here we have Peter witnessing of this power and this powerful Jesus who wields ultimate authority over the body. 
Significantly, this message and this power of Jesus is not confined to Jerusalem. It's on the move. It's moving outward, and it's visiting regions and towns everywhere. This is the witness of Jesus spreading to the ends of the earth. And so here we have this sensational miracle where Peter, in the name of Jesus, making that connection, this is the living Jesus that is doing this, heals this man and demonstrates to everyone watching there is an authority over the body that is greater than living in a sin-cursed world. And it's Jesus Christ. What is the effect? We look at verse 35. What does that do for the people around? How does this witness of Jesus, we notice here in verse 35, is that God works by powerfully using testimonies. Verse 35, it says this, And all of the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So God employs a sensational miracle through Peter, And maybe it would be scenarios like this that we can get caught envying and wondering if our own lives are making a difference if we're not doing something to that scale. But let's look at Aeneas here for a moment. He is a walking, living testimony of the authority and the power of Jesus Christ. And just by way of him receiving the grace of Jesus, people saw his life and turned, the text said, turned to Jesus. The point I'm trying to make here is this, that Peter leaves the scene. Peter comes through Christ because of the power of the Holy Spirit. He is able to perform this miracle, but he leaves the scene. And what remains is this change that Jesus brought about in Aeneas' life. People observed it. They learned that it was a work of Jesus and they turned to Christ because of it. Let's not fall prey to discounting and diminishing God's power working through our lives by way of testimony. Do you remember the blind man in John chapter 9? Jesus comes and he heals this blind man, and then there was a a large argument among how this happened and all of this. And they, they finally, after these two parties are arguing back and forth about this miracle that Jesus performed, they turned to the blind man and they said, well, what do you say? The blind man just simply said, all I can tell you is I once was blind, but now I see. And Jesus did this. What, what a great testimony. Just simply stating there is a change in my life. It was caused by Jesus. Let us not discount, brothers and sisters, that we all are all walking miracles of the power of Jesus Christ to change a life, and our testimony powerfully testifies of Jesus by doing so. We move on to a second miracle that we're going to look at this morning. Here we encounter a woman. This begins in verse 36, and this woman shows that God is at work powerfully leading his followers. He is leading the followers of Jesus that they have changed lives on the inside and that translates to a changed life on the outside. Look with me in verse 36. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full 
of good works and acts of charity. This scene is going to move now from Lydda, where Peter was, where Aeneas was, and it's going to move from Lydda to Joppa, which was about a 10 or 12 mile walk up the road. I've got one more map just to show us this morning. This map here shows us Joppa today, and it's actually referred to as Jaffa today. And if you look a little bit to the north and a little bit to the west on this map, um, these, the, this community is right on the edge of Tel Aviv. So if you've traveled to Israel, you've probably flown into the international airport there, Tel Aviv. And this is the area that our text now moves to. And we'll get to it at the end, but I'll go ahead and show you the, uh, the, the place in the, in the picture now. But Simon the Tanner will meet in verse 43. It's believed that his house right there by the sea is located. They still know, excuse me, where that house is today. We'll get to that one in just a few moments. But back to our text. We encounter a woman here named Tabitha. And that was her name in Aramaic. And so Luke also gives the translated name into Greek, which is Dorcas. Both of those names just simply mean gazelle. It means a deer or a deer-like figure, the gazelle. Now, we notice a few significant things about Dorcas here. First, it says that she is a disciple, a mathetes, a follower and a learner of Jesus. She was a learner of Jesus and all that Jesus is, all that Jesus does. It's likely that the persecution that we learned about in Acts chapter 8 of the followers of Jesus that scattered them out of Jerusalem, it's very likely that that's how the gospel came to her area. There was a hotbed of persecution happening. It displaced a lot of the believers in Jerusalem. They would have scattered around the area, and so it's likely that some of them went to Joppa, and it is here that Dorcas learns of Jesus and becomes a follower of him tells us, and the scripture here is teaching us, that Jesus was powerfully leading in her life. He was powerfully working in her as she became full of good works and acts of charity. These things did not happen on their own. They were not natural to her. It is because she was a disciple and a follower of Jesus, these things began to ooze out of her life. These works and acts of charity— well, what do these things mean specifically? Good works is a general term, but it would have described of her that she was giving up her time. She was giving up portions of her life to help others in any good that she could do. That's a very generic or general term, but she was giving her time. She was giving her days. She was giving her moments up to help others in any good things that she could find to do, but also acts of charity. That's a more specific term, and it refers to the fact that she was providing money to those in need. She's giving her time. She's helping others. She's also giving up her money. She's giving up her wealth. She's giving of the things that she has to help those in need. In a couple of verses here in just a moment, We'll see a sampling of how these actions came together for her as she tangibly loved and cared for a group of widows 
living in her town. We'll see that in just a moment. But what a great testimony to the power of God. Jesus was working in Dorcas's life and he was leading her to value these things, to value good works and to value giving, to value those things over selfishness and greed and to keeping. Her life powerfully witnessed of her master and her savior Jesus whom she was following. So we can't discount here the powerful way that God was working in this woman's life as she was living out what she learned of Jesus. Number five, as we look down here now in verses 37 through 42, this is again one of these sensational miracles that's about to take place, but is powerfully demonstrating the authority of Jesus here once again as this miracle is done, not in Peter's strength, but in the name of Jesus, that he has power and authority over death and loss. Look with me at verse 37. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, he took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Well, this is a sad turn of events. After describing this godly and helpful woman, now we learn that she had taken ill and died. Peter's about 10 to 12 miles away. So they send two men hurriedly to Lydda and, and they invite him to come. They urge him to come. Now, it's really unclear exactly what they were wanting him to do. Um, we don't know what their intentions were here. They just heard that an apostle was near they sent delegates and said, get him, get him to come. Peter immediately leaves Lydda. He goes to Joppa. And, and, and then what a scene he's welcomed into. What, what a scene here that Peter's introduced into. There, there's both gratitude going on, but it's mixed with great sorrow. They show Peter some of the works of Dorcas's love and charity. They're, they're all lined up and they're, they're showing all of the ways that this woman had loved and cared for them and others around them. But at the same time, they're weeping. They're weeping because they will miss her presence. They will miss seeing her face to face and interacting with her and having the blessings of a Christ follower in their midst. And so their hearts are broken. This is a, a, pic, a picture here of the breaking of fellowship. And we could certainly say this, brothers and sisters, this is one of the most difficult situations that we face living in a fallen world, to watch people pass away. It separates us. It separates our fellowship that we hold so dear and that we love so much. And we feel this wound very deeply. 
Is there anything else in all of this life that we experience more sorrowfully than when we watch someone pass on? It separates us from the fellowship that we enjoy with them. And and so this question comes up again here. Is there anything, is there any authority, is there any power greater than this? Or do we just concede in this life that death has the ultimate authority and it is over, end of story? Is there any light that is greater than this darkness that we experience in this life? Let's look to verse 40 to find out. Peter put them all outside and he knelt down and prayed. Right? He didn't do this, what he's about to do. He didn't do it on his own leaning. He didn't do it on his own initiative. He enters into prayer with the Lord and the Lord is directing him to do what he's about to do. It's very unique. It's very specific. Turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all of Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Many Bible scholars point to the similarity of this miracle with the time that Jesus raised Talitha, not Tabitha, but that Jesus had raised Talitha from the dead. He also used those very words, Talitha, arise or get up. Peter here, Tabitha, arise and get up. Everything that's happening here is certainly making the connection to a living Savior Jesus Christ, who is not dead, who is still actively working on this earth through his church, for what purpose? To spread the fame and the name of Jesus and the gospel that God saves powerfully through Jesus. He has authority over the body and the soul. Death cannot even hold him. Death is no rival to him. Jesus is over all of this. This is the entire point of this sensational miracle. It's not to make much of Peter. It's not for us to envy his abilities or to question why this isn't commonplace. The powerful and living name of Jesus was displayed and demonstrated in that community. And we're told that many turned to Jesus. What a powerful miracle and memorable miracle this was and what it taught. It taught that Jesus has authority over death and life. And with Jesus, all sorrow, all loss of fellowship that we experience here on this earth will be erased in heaven forevermore. His kingdom is eternal. And so, yes, we mourn and yes, we weep, but it is not without hope because we know that those who are in Christ, it is not a goodbye forever. It is a see you later. And even though in the moment we sorrow over those that we miss, those who pass on, 
those in whom we, we separate our fellowship for a time with Jesus and his power, he brings those back together forevermore. What a hopeful thing this is, brothers and sisters. We don't just have to come under the decay, living on a sin-cursed earth and in a fallen world, and death has the final answer, and death is the most powerful thing, and we just have to live with that. Jesus supersedes all of these, and his name is great. What a powerful display of the power of Jesus Christ and what he can do here. We'll end on what will feel like a bit of an anticlimactic note here in verse 43. But let us not discount this as well, that what we find at the end of this text this morning is that God is powerfully breaking down divisions that have held sway for millennia on this earth. Look with me at verse 43. And he, that is Peter, stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. You probably can't get much greater distance from the events of verses 40 through 42 and verse 43. We go from raising a body back to life to simply saying that Peter stayed with someone. But it wasn't just someone that he stayed with. It wasn't just a man named Simon who was extending hospitality and Peter was enjoying that. Let's not overlook what's happening here as we close this text. Simon is a tanner, which means he works with animal skins, which means there's an abundance of animal carcasses everywhere. In fact, this is likely the reason, and I showed you in that picture a few moments ago, this is likely the reason why his home was by the sea, so that the breeze from the sea could kind of sweep away the stench from his house. It had the smell of death there. It's working with these animal skins all the time. But more importantly, this meant that Peter was staying with a man who was constantly in a state of being ceremonially unclean. That's hard for us to capture in the American mind in the 21st century, but if we could just go back to the Jewish law for just a moment, this was not for Peter to do to be around a person who's ceremonially unclean, dealing with the carcasses of animals, he was to avoid this. Ah, but even here, in the acts of God, he is actively and powerfully at work, working in Peter's life, working through the hospitality of a tanner to break down divisions among people, and to open the door for the gospel to run to places without any kind of barrier. We'll see how this is significant next Sunday when Peter encounters a Gentile and the Lord tells Peter, you are to no longer call something unclean that I have called clean. But for now... We'll stop here for today. We'll draw this message to a close. I just want to conclude with a couple of words. Every act of God to spread the name of Jesus on this earth is an act of power. 
Every act of God to spread the gospel is done in power. Yes, we encounter sensational outward miracles. Those have been done at times to demonstrate the power of the living Jesus. But let us not overlook the inward miracles that happen. These ordinary miracles, if you will, these are also done to spread the name and the message of Jesus. That God works powerfully in various ways. He does this in both big and small things, from healings to mobilizing people who might otherwise want to stay at home, to making clothing, to hospitality, and opening up their home. Nothing is insignificant that God chooses and that God calls you to do. These are powerful miracles of God to spread his gospel. He uses all of these things to exalt Jesus, to witness of his name, and to build his church. These are the acts of God. And what a great truth these are for us to hear today. Let's close our time this morning in prayer. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to take a glimpse into the life and the inner workings of the early church. Lord, might we not get sidetracked by some of these miraculous miracles, these sensational miracles, wondering if you're still at work in the world today, if you're still working a power in the world today. Lord, let us also pay attention and realize and notice whatever you call us to do is cause for the proclamation of our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for your glory and the building up and the growing of the church. So Lord, we don't want to leave this morning either with, without saying praise you, bless your name. Thank you for showing us once again the great power that Jesus Christ yields the power and the authority that he has over the body, over sin and death, and over all of eternity. And Lord, we, are say, we would say we are comforted in the rest that you have called us in Christ. Would you press this passage, these words to our hearts here this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.